0: Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Chris Miller. I'm uh, the board chair of the National Coalition for Community Capital, and it is our pleasure to invite you into this really cool and really exciting meeting with some really smart uh, panelists today. They're not going to disappoint me, I know, or you in that front. Uh, so NC3, uh, again, the National Coalition for Community Capital, uh, is a nonprofit, a 501 c 3 got together uh, initially in 2016 in Portland, Oregon, where some of our colleagues put together a national conference uh, called ComCap 16. Uh, we formalized our uh, arrangement as a nonprofit in 2017 and a national conference in Monterey, California, uh, and brought that conference to the middle of the country to Detroit in 2019. Um, I want to make sure that I note. Uh, two of our original founding board members because they're pretty well regarded and known in these circles. Uh, First is Michael Schuman, uh, who's an attorney and an economist and probably the most prolific speaker and writer on this topic on the planet. Uh, And he was one of our founding board members, as was Amy Cortese, who wrote a book called Locavesting, that was a great storytelling book about how communities all across the country found atypical ways to put capital together and get important things done in their communities. And that is really what NC3 is about. Um, When we looked at the ecosystem uh, back in 2014, 15, 16, Uh, we recognized that uh, we needed a way to build individual wealth and and local community wealth so that we could have vibrant economies in a global economy. Because the challenge right now is that the economy that we have built right now does not serve communities well. Uh, It's become expert at extracting wealth from communities or harvesting wealth from communities and not very good at all at investing in communities. And as as we'll talk today during this webinar, it's really important that that we see wealth come back to our communities and originate in our communities and circulate in our communities. So I'm excited to introduce our panel uh, to you today. Uh, uh, First of all is, um, at the bottom of my screen at least, uh, is Deborah Fries. Deborah is the president and co-founder of the Boston Impact Initiative. We're talking today about pooled investment vehicles or a way to combine a local capital and get projects done. We have terrific tools now around investment crowdfunding that work great on a project by project basis. It's got some way to go until we're really wild about it, but it's a much better place than we were a decade ago when it was not even legal to do so. But pooled investment vehicles are a way for us to join together in projects and in in projects in our community. And there are some structures that are in place that have some challenges. Deborah has been amazing at finding a way to use um, uh, one of the one of the particular tools that it's out there. Um, Next up is uh, Janice Shade. Uh, Janice is also one of the founding board members of the National Coalition for Community Capital Uh, and as an entrepreneur and uh, a leader in many ways. And I think right now the kind of big hat on her head is the founder of the Initiative for Local Capital. Uh, next is Helen Johnson uh, and Helen's at the top of my screen. Helen is the president of the Michigan, Muni- Mi- Michigan Municipal League Foundation. Try and say that fast three times. Um, and r- a real dynamic leader um, in the foundation world and in particular, uh, in the world of municipal um, communities across the state of Michigan and uh, MML has often been a, a national leader on that front as well. And uh, Helen's got some really interesting perspectives to bring to us. Finally, Brian Becken. Uh, I leave Brian last because uh, if you don't, he'll hog the spotlight from everybody. So. <laughs> Brian Beckin is an attorney with Cutting Edge Capital, uh, one, of, one of the early firms that really looked out of the box to find ways to help communities do well. A good friend uh, and a great leader in this space as well. So, Brian, I'm going to start off with you uh, just doing a, a quick intro of yourself and uh, remember that you're going to tell us something that you're particularly proud of uh, an accomplishment and why. And remember that I am capable of cutting you off if you talk
1: too long. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, anyway, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for the very uh, kind introduction. Uh, let's see. What am I proud of? I, I guess I will say, you know, really, I know that at the, at the risk of sounding a little dorky here, I, I'm really probably most proud of the the work that, that that my firm and I have done um, in this community capital space. You know, sort of sometimes it has seemed a little bit like a you know, voice in the wilderness talking about raising capital from within your own community, not going, not, you know, not having to go out and find those those rich folks somewhere else. But uh, but that's something that we've been talking about for a long time. And and, you know, the ideas are getting traction now, and it definitely I, I, I do feel proud, but I hear sort of a broader conversation about community wealth building and so on, because that, that's what we've been talking about for a long time. So so I, I, I'll leave it at that. I, I could go on and on, as you know, but I'll, I'll I don't up there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. Janice, will you uh, do the same thing? Don't use the same words as Brian, but talk about what you're <laughs> proud about. <laughs>
2: yeah, but, well, it is kind of along the, the similar lines. Um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of is, is just thinking back, you know, five years or so to when a lot of us first met and started coming together to talk about these things. And and at that first ComCap conference where there were more people on the panel than there were in the audience. And to see where we've come to today, where there are so many people who are aware of of community capital asking questions about it. Um, We've gotten the attention and collaboration uh, collaboration with, Everyone from local community organizations through local and state governments, all the way up to uh, federal government and and paying attention to what we're doing, asking questions and wanting to be a part of it. So um, we've moved from having to build the awareness to now we're fine tuning things and building the tools to actually make real change happen.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Helen, will you follow up with that?
3: No, absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Um, and it's, it's fun to go after people who've done really big things like Brian and Janice, but um, I actually want to get a little bit more granular with something that I'm really proud of. So in 2007, I co-founded a social innovation incubator called Create Here, and we were really looking at the intersection of arts, culture, and economic development and really excited about stirring the pot on the local energy that we had in our community and we decided we put painters and plumbers in the same classes to teach them entrepreneurial skills and to teach them how to be successful in their small business. And we had creativity in forming the sort of more structured business. And we had the businesses saying, artists and designers, you've got to be more structured in the way that you're thinking about your business plan. And what we saw is over the five-year course of Create Here, which we started it as a time limited engagement, um, we graduated over a thousand entrepreneurs from our class and it was called springboard at the time but it's gone on over the years since then since 2012 to birth about 10,000 different small businesses and entrepreneurs across really the country because that's popped up all over the place and and what I believe is that when you focus on people and you focus on place and you give people the tools and the resources and the funding that they need you can actually make a difference that's replicable.
0: Awesome. Great. Thank you very much. That was terrific. I want to hear more about that. Uh, That's a great program. Deborah, will you finish up for us with your intro?
4: Sure. And I'll pick up on the last line that Helen said about giving people the resources they need in a place. Um, So so for me, going back eight years, we had this hypothesis that you could take a place-based approach and deploy integrated capital equity debt grants to close the racial wealth divide. And at the time, it wasn't a thing. (laughs) Um, it's a thing now and and so looking to where we are today not only are we doing it but there's and you'll hear more about this but 11 other communities around the country that are learning with us and doing something in their own unique way in their own unique place Um, but the rate at which these seeds that we've all been planting these little pioneering species are turning into more robust ecosystems is is really exciting
0: that's a Great synopsis, and and it definitely is an exciting space because of that uh, that's happening. So I'm going to go to Helen for the first sort of formal question. Before I do that, though, I just want to make sure that I articulate when we're talking about community capital, what we're talking about in this discussion today. And this is financial capital. Well, There's lots of types of community capital. And and, uh, at, at the MML, where Helen works, they're looking very broadly at that. But for us, we're talking about financial capital that is sourced essentially from the community. Community could be a lot of different things. It could be a physical geographic community. It could be a sector. It could be a, a number of things. It could be a place that we have affinity with, uh, but in any event, so we're talking about financial capital that is invested uh, in, a, in a community and then benefits that community. So, all right, so h- here's the first question, uh, and it's for Helen. Um, so, why did the Michigan Municipal League evolve its focus? So that happened over the past year or so. Um, MML was a leader in placemaking. In fact, placemaking was not a proper noun until MML and others kind of grabbed a hold of it. Uh, And so if you could talk about why you have now evolved to the place where the MML is about building community wealth, that would be great.
3: It's it's a really interesting story, and you're right, Um, MML was looked at as sort of the preeminent leader in talking about placemaking and we've got books that MML has written about the importance of focusing on place and thinking about building on local assets. And I think we're, we're at a moment now, and we started this actually before the pandemic, but where we started thinking about our legislative priorities and thinking about there were, you know, 18 different legislative priorities and realizing that, well, first that's a lot. And all of them essentially fit into different verticals that comprise community. So, thinking about economic and financial stability, about infrastructure, um, environment, and you know climate. Thinking about arts and culture, health and well-being, education. But really, that you know, people even though we've divided our communities up into these verticals, that's not how people live their lives. People live their lives horizontally across all of those things, and the league began to define community much more broadly, not as just something that's sort of stuck in the four walls of City Hall, but really as sort of the collection of individuals and assets that make up a place, and thinking about how it is that our communities can be co-creators of a better future as we move forward together, thinking about all of these cross-cuts, all of the cross-sector partnerships that are necessary for that. Um, We've chosen of all of those and knowing that we can't actually we can't plan all of those spaces either right because again those are tables that need to be occupied by partners who are experts in those sectors but we are focusing as we move forward in the community wealth building space on infrastructure and economic and financial stability and thinking about the tools and the opportunities that are out there right now that can be looked at differently. Like if we're gonna see our communities build wealth and and when we talk about it, I do wanna reiterate, we are talking about social, cultural and economic wealth, you know, the whole sort of the human experience, how can we make the human experience better? But, But understanding that without financial stability in communities, um, you can dream, but you can't build it, right? And so there are a lot of opportunities right now, particularly with the administration that's currently in place for municipalities and the state and for counties to have access to funds that they've never had access to before. And we think that the power is shifting seats a little bit. Um, our communities have been so strapped for so long and have been able to dream a little bit, have but have had to let people go, their staffs have changed. And now there's an opportunity for them to think differently about how they build community wealth because they have access to American Rescue Plan funds. Um, We've given them access to consultants who can help them with applications for the trillion other dollars that are also out there. But then we're asking everyone to sort of take a breath and to think about how can we not roll the same rock up the same hill? But how do we think about the types of permitting changes and zoning changes that may be necessary in our communities and on Main Street to allow small businesses and entrepreneurs to be successful as they set up shop? How do we think about the, the process of even getting a business license differently so that it doesn't take six months, but it can be compressed? And how do we change the access to capital? Um, what we're looking at right now with community, Building especially is that small and micro businesses just don't have access in many places to the kind of capital that's necessary to seed their work. So there are some places that have done really well and set an example for what that can look like, but there are huge gaps. And so how is it that we can participate with partners in building infrastructure in those places that allows them to absorb capital in an equitable way um, with a real focus and intentional focus on communities that have been socially and economically disadvantaged, disadvantaged, disinvested, however you wanna say it. But I think there's there's a tremendous amount of energy that's moving towards this right now. Um, The partnerships that, that we see forming Looking to sort of row in the same direction, making sure that there are opportunities for you to invest in your neighbor in a way that you never have before um, is something that we're really excited about. And, you know, Chris, you and I, I know we'll talk later about this too, but we think there's an opportunity for public investment and for philanthropic investment to complement that energy that we know is in communities. Chris, I think you're on mute.
0: Somebody has to do that in order for this to be a a real Zoom meeting, right? So it's usually not me though. Brian is usually the one that does it. (laughs) That's true. And that's generally because I refuse to mute myself. So just be forewarned Uh, So in any event. um, So I I, I liked a couple of lines, uh, particularly Helen. One was that uh, you can dream it, but you can't build it, which I think is absolutely true. Uh, And then uh, the the reference to rolling the same rock up the same hill. So while it's exciting that we've got big money coming into our communities right now because of federal funds, that is not sustainable. And uh, certainly that is what we are about. Uh, in this conversation is looking at ways for that to be sustainable. And obviously appreciate the reference uh, to the equity piece, which is fundamental to all the work that we're doing. So, okay, great. Um, Let me uh, suggest uh, that if anybody in the audience has questions uh, that you post them in the chat, Uh, We will try to get to them, uh, but I do want to give some time for all of our panelists to talk as well. Uh, And um, panelists, if if you see something or want to ask a question from one of the other panelists, please just talk over the top of me, otherwise I might not let you. Uh, great. Um, so I'm going to go next to Deborah uh, and ask a very broad question. You put together this remar- remarkable project called the Boston Impact Initiative, and uh, and why did you do that, and how did you do it, and then t- tell us a little bit about it too.
4: Um, so, so back in 2012, and I was with my own resources doing impact investing. And the more I got into impact investing, I was like, I really want to invest with my values. And I look at impact investing and I see impact investing funds that invest in multinational pharmaceutical companies and banks. And I'm like, hold on a second. This is so, where's the impact investing about the things I care about? Made me really ask what I cared about. And I care about my community. I'm from Boston. I still live in Boston. I have left, but I've come back. Um, and if I look at my city and my and the broader community where I live, um, the racial wealth divide. Some of you may have heard. It's it, you know we trade places sometimes with Atlanta for the number one most unequal city by income in the country. Um, black households in Boston have eight dollars of net worth. That's not uh, missing zeros. That's eight dollars of net worth. And so as I looked at that, I was like, why can't impact investing be applied to this problem? This seems like an investment problem because the thing that I'm interested in is wealth. Um, Not that I'm not interested in income, jobs are important, but uh, outcomes for families don't change if we don't create asset building opportunities. And a lot of the initiatives that address race address often entry-level jobs and workforce development, but they're not building ownership and control over assets, buildings, land, and the means of production. And as a serial entrepreneur, I felt more comfortable with means of production. So we said, look, let's try this out. We wanna create a fund in our community. And, and for us, that meant Eastern Massachusetts. We started with Boston, but so many entrepreneurs of color had already been displaced from the city of Boston that we realized we needed to go where they'd been displaced too. Um, so Eastern Massachusetts. And if we're gonna fill the capital gap in a market where there are already, uh, the city of Boston commissioned to study and discovered there were already 350 capital providers dedicated to helping women and minority owned businesses and 250 technical assistance providers dedicated to doing the same. And yet uh, entrepreneurs of color were still not getting the capital they needed and not getting the technical assistance and social capital that they needed. And so we said, that's the gap we wanna fill. And if we're gonna fill that gap, we can't look like every other capital provider out there. And so that's when we created number one, an integrated capital fund was like, we're gonna take every tool in the capital quiver. We're gonna do term loans. Yeah, sure, but lots of people do that. So we're gonna do royalty financing. We're gonna do convertible notes. We're gonna do guarantees. We're gonna do grants. We're gonna do um, you know, ob- preferred equity. We're gonna do everything and we're gonna do it with the lens of trying to redistribute wealth. So when we make an inequity investment, we're gonna cap our exit at 2X and make sure the upside accrues to the owners and the workers, not to us. When we lend in the microfinance sector, we're gonna lend at five to 7% when most of our fellow microfinance allies are doing nine to 15% or more. Those are the good guys, right? And so if we're gonna do a fund like that, um, we're gonna to have to do a different kind of structure because we're not gonna make money doing that. And that's when we called our friend Brian Becken because I don't know anybody else who knows more about this um, and said, what should we do? Because my pro bono lawyers who are from a multinational firm are suggesting I do a private equity fund, and that doesn't seem to be the right matching of sources and uses of capital. And so with both the example of Pioneer, um, P- uh, what's it called, Pioneer Valley, the, the fund what grows. Valley, PV Grows, thank you, Pioneer Valley Grows in Westward Mass, which did this structure, and Brian's guidance, we chose a charitable loan fund structure, which we can talk more about. But um, it allowed us to do a couple things. One is to be a nonprofit raising and deploying capital and using every type of capital in the toolbox. Um, It also really importantly to us, allowed us to address the issue of wealth building on both sides of the equation, sources and uses. It means that our investors can be non-accredited or low wealth community investors. And it's one of the main reasons we chose this tool, which is said we want to democratize access to capital for entrepreneurs. And we wanna democratize access to impact first investing for low wealth folks in our community. And so the Boston Impact Initiative allows us through this charitable loan fund structure to do that.
0: Awesome. Uh, and how long did it take you to do the, all of that work, Deborah?
4: Well, we did a a pilot fund from 2013 to 2017 through a privately held LLC. So we actually had to demonstrate that this hypothesis worked Mm -hmm. before we were going to go raise money from other investors. So in 2017, we'd put $3 million out to 30 different investments. Our investment size was about $50,000 to $250,000 range, which is kind of the missing middle in our community. And said, yeah, this is a thing, this works. We want to go raise money. So it took us about 12 months to go through the process of designing the fund and going through all the legal structuring and a lot of effort to get the fund launched. It launched in May of 2018. We intended to raise 10 million because it's a lot of small deals, right? To raise, raise 10 million, raise and deploy over four years. So keep it rolling. And we actually raised 7 million in a year and a half, way faster than we expected to because there was a lot of appetite for this kind of a structure. Um, and we hit the pause button in January of 2020 because more capital had come in than we could spend. Um, and then COVID hit, and we actually closed the fund. We kept it at 7, seven million, and then added zero uh, percent recoverable grants to support entrepreneurs in recovery from COVID.
0: And how are things now as we are moving out of the COVID tunnel, what does it look like looking like?
4: Well, I will say that I'm very grateful that we had the charitable loan fund structure because it allowed us to layer capital in such a way that folks that were really philanthropically oriented, whether straight grants, recoverable grants or, you know, 5-year 1% notes We're happy to be subordinate to other note holders. And so because of that, we've been able to, we didn't stop lending at all. All the lenders I know around me were like, uh, nobody wants debt. And we're like, yeah, nobody wants fixed rate term loans right now. But a lot of people want purchase order finance, accounts, receivable financing, royalty financing, and other non-traditional capital structures. Um, So one business went out of business in our portfolio of 35 companies during covid Um, Everybody else is okay. I'd say about 30% of the portfolio is still wobbly, Um, but we believe through both government stimulus and that a lot of lobbying work that had to go into making the first version of the CARES Act better because the PPP program was not good in its rollout, but, and we found ourselves in policy for the first time. Uh, but uh, I think the, our companies are are on the road to recovery. Um, and I foresee that most of all of them will make it all the way through that remain.
0: Great. Okay. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, very good. Um, so Janice, I'm going to go uh, to you next. Um, you were one of four authors uh, of Community Investment Funds, a how-to guide, Uh, to build local wealth equity and justice. And for the last 18 months or so, you've led NC3's task force um, that resulted in our proposal to the Securities and Exchange Commission, a 21st century community investment fund. Why did you spend all of that precious time of your professional and personal life uh, on this topic?
2: Well, because it goes a lot, lot farther back than that. Uh-huh. Um, this is a this is a concept that I've been thinking about since um, probably two thousand eight, when I was an entrepreneur starting my own business and wanting to raise capital just like this. And you know, I even went to my attorney and said, "I have this idea that I call my million moms idea, and I'd love to have a million moms." Each invested dollar in this mom entrepreneur to get my business up and running, and and I always remember that he he I, I kind of pictured that he wanted to pat me on the head and say, oh, that's a cute idea, but you can't really do that. And so, um, you know, since that time, I I've been trying different ways to kind of pushing the boundaries of the legal envelope, so to speak, to figure out ways to make this kind of community capital work, and um, and have have kind of made inroads here and there. Um, you know, crowdfunding was a great step towards this. It, it was a great way to prove the concept that, um, that people do, uh, you know, friends and neighbors do actually wanna invest in these kinds of businesses. And it's still difficult to do. It's challenging for both the entrepreneur and the investor. And so, um, you know, so much of the work that I've been doing now through the Initiative for Local Capital is to find ways to break down the barriers to this, creating this relationship between citizen investors and place-based um, um, entrepreneurs, and what really kind of brought it to a head was, uh, you know, that CARES Act that that Deborah mentioned. Um, it was right around the time, you know, March of 2020, when um, you know we were starting to get inklings, you know, everyone's going to get a big check, and somehow people were finding their way to me and asking me variations of, of this uh, of kind of a, a single thread of a question, which is, I'm doing okay, my job's fine, I don't need this check, but the business down the road for me, it might go under, can I take that check and do anything with it? And that's, that's when I knew we had a watershed moment that this concept of, of aggregated community capital, that we've been working on for so long in so many ways is starting to gain um, gain in you know gain some some traction with the general public and that people would be open to the idea and so that was really the the impetus behind forming the community investment fund task force because there were still a few barriers left to making this dream come true. Um, and, you know, I think Brian's probably going to get into several of them, but, you know, some of the big ones that, that we have to tackle are on the regulatory side. Um, you know, there's this, there's this little thing called the investment company act of 1940 that um, that was written you know, 81 years ago with great intentions has been doing a lot of things. It's, you know, it's what, Regulates um, mutual funds, hedge funds, um, any kind of um, collective investment uh, form or fund, and there are some there are just some barriers in it that make it still difficult to really have the flexibility um, to to make the kinds of investments um, that some folks want to do in their community. So there's the regulatory side of things that need to be addressed. There's also that's the technical and what I call kind of the back office, the reality of running a fund. Um, you know, I've worked with a number of communities around the country that have expressed interest, you know, years ago, but you know, before um, before the task force was formed and, you know, consulted with them to, to help these grassroots organizing groups come together and figure out how to create a fund. And another barrier that that came up all the time was, okay, once we get this fund, up and running, now we actually have to manage it. And wow, that's really out of our wheelhouse. And it's a lot of money uh, you know, to, to hire the right people to be able to do it. Is there a way to make this more affordable? So the task force was set up to kind of go down uh, the, these two paths to break down these two sets of barriers, the, the regulatory barrier, and then just the, the technical back office management barrier. And um, I'm very happy to say we're making great progress on both of those areas.
1: Terrific.
0: Your personal passion around this, Janice, is, is really amazing. Uh, and because Deborah lavished a compliment on Brian that was certainly undeserved, I want to make sure that uh, the, that you get recognition for the work that you that you did and have been doing for a long time. So uh, appreciate that. So we'll turn to Brian next. Uh, so you were also one of the co-authors of, of that uh, community investment uh, fund how-to guide. Uh, and you are an attorney, it's required that we have one at each of these meetings. And so that's why you're here. Uh, It does pain me to acknowledge that Deborah was right when she uh, identified you as sort of the the source of all the font of all knowledge on community investment funds. Uh, And now the bar is very high and I'm gonna be interested to watch to see how you get over it. Uh, As you explain uh, the community investment fund world to us, uh, and uh, you know what, what, what our existing situation is and what, why Janice and others have worked so hard to uh, create a new tool uh, to help us do this in a, in a better way and help many more communities to do it. Go
1: for it, Brian. <laughs> All right, thanks, Chris. Well, uh, so, so, so I'd say there kind of are, are two key challenges that we're trying to overcome. One is a challenge of inclusion and the other is a challenge of scale. Let me talk about inclusion first. And and thanks to Deborah for for pointing out that, that, you know, there's sort of two dimensions of inclusion. There there are many conversations that happen around the country about how we can get more money into the hands of entrepreneurs who have been traditionally overlooked or left out of the system. Uh, but, But the conversation that doesn't happen nearly as often is is on the sourcing of that capital. And you know, in in traditional impact investing, you know, there's a focus on, you know, rich people putting their money to work doing some good in the world and and that's great. But but that doesn't tackle the underlying problem that it's the rich people doing that. What about the rest of us? So so let me talk about inclusion and focusing on on the sourcing of capital. You know, we have this division now between accredited and non-accredited investors. And an accredited investor, is, you know, to be specific, is someone with a million dollars in assets or 200000 in income. Basically, it's the wealthiest. Well, depending on who you ask and how you count, it's you know, 2% or 5% or 8%. But let's just say 5%, just to take an average of those numbers. The wealthiest 5% of Americans are accredited. Everyone else is unaccredited. What, what sometimes are referred to as retail investors when they have their investor hat on. Uh, and, and, and more specifically, there is this, there's this gap between in, the investment opportunities available to those wealthy people versus the investment opportunities that are available to the non-wealthy. You know, basically the profitable investments out there, uh, you know, which, which also are more risky, and and that's you know that's part of the challenge here. You have you, you know the in the in a company's trajectory, you know these early stages are are the most profitable stages at which to invest, but it's also the most risky. and And then in the traditional trajectory, they raise capital privately, and then at some point, you know well down the road, once they get into the billions, uh, then then they go public and then those shares are available to to everyone, uh, you know, the public, uh, the retail investors. But during that growth trajectory, you know, the traditional method of raising capital says they have to raise capital privately. And and because of the way the, you know, the rules have been designed, um, when you raise capital privately, which every company does up until it gets, you know, up until it gets past that growth phase, when you raise capital privately, uh, it is easy to raise capital from accredited investors. It is very difficult to raise capital from unaccredited investors. Now, that was a well-intentioned distinction or dichotomy, but um, it has—it it is probably a, an ill-advised way of approaching it. Now, from the—you know—that's the way it's been now for at least a couple of generations, uh, and and so, so as a result, you have this. Um, you know, this solution to the problem of protecting the non wealthy investors from, from losing money, the solution has basically meant that non wealthy investors have no access to wealthy, or, excuse me, to, um, to profitable investments. And all the profitable investments are only available to the wealthy. Now, you can imagine what that does if, if only the wealthy get to invest in profitable de- deals and the rest of us who are not wealthy all we can invest in is uh, you know, bank CDs and other, other investments that on a risk-adjusted basis pay a low rate of return, then, then that means we're basically saying we're going to, we're going to richly reward the wealthy for, inv- for investing and make sure they can grow their wealth rapidly. And, and everyone else, the other 95% of us, we're gonna penalize them for investing because they can't really even keep up with inflation with their investments. So we reward the wealthy, we penalize the non-wealthy for investing. And naturally the outcome is that the wealthy do in fact grow their wealth and the non-wealthy typically don't bother investing outside of their perhaps a retirement account. But how many non-wealthy people actually have real investments? Typically not uh so you know because it's not cost effective for them to to do so uh and we don't you know it's culturally we discourage it well we obviously need to change that because if we're going to talk about creating wealth building opportunities for everybody we need find we need to find effective ways for the non-wealthy to build wealth other than in the public markets and in bank cds so what we need are are our access to good investment opportunities now um you know, in recent years, there has been a movement to allow non-wealthy people more opportunities to get in on, on uh, you know investment opportunities outside the traditional public market. So so you know Congress has has made that a goal, and in in you know, at least at least insofar as it passed the Jobs Act of 2012, that was a big step toward allowing everyday people to uh, to invest. In something meaningful, something local that they like, uh, and, um, and so that that has been a step in the right direction. Uh, but but you know now I want to focus in on 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 pooled investment vehicles because the problem with with um, you know Reg CF and other types of investments where non-accredited people can in fact get in on the investment. The problem is most non-accredited investors, most most retail investors. Are, are are not well equipped to make the kind of you know decisions that those those investments require. They're not really equipped to to make a you know, due diligence assessment of someone raising capital on on uh, via reg CF and so you know, it, it doesn't really address the problem uh, if, as effectively as it could uh, because 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 non-accredited investors are you know are, are as often are, li- are as likely to make a bad investment decision as a good one put it that way what we need are ways for non-accredited investors to invest in community investment funds that are professionally managed and and can make the kinds of local investments that that invest that investors want uh, and, and that, um, that entrepreneurs also want. So it's a way of meeting the need on both sides at the same time at a community scale. And that's the key. Now I want to talk about scale because that's, that's where we need to go with this. You can create a mutual fund under the 1940 Investment Company Act that Janice mentioned, uh, but, but that is so expensive. It requires full registration with the SEC, you know, with costs, you know, 200,000 and up, it only makes sense for large scale funds, not for community scale funds. And so, you know, so, so there is this this gap here there. You know, you can have a, a, a pooled investment vehicle, but but the cost of, of operating it is is so expensive that there is no there is no local mutual fund. Uh, but that's what people want. And that's what entrepreneurs need. Um, you know, so, so the um, what what we have proposed at, at NC three is to is to um, allow is is for the SEC to create a new exemption strategy under the 1940 Act that would allow for the creation of a of a true community scale uh, fund that can take in. Investment from any investor, in other words, incredi- accredited and non-accredited investors, and can make, you know, a variety of different kinds of investments, equity investments. I mean, there are many lenders, and lending is great, and you know, we definitely want to celebrate the CDFIs in our communities, but 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 that's not enough. We need this fund to be able to make equity investments, to be able to make, um, you know, revenue share investments, different kinds of investments. Uh, at a community scale with, in, again, investment from accredited and non-accredited investors and be able to share profits. So it needs to be a for-profit vehicle uh, that, can sh- that can share profits uh, and, 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 as a result, build, help build wealth for anyone. Now, this may sound like a, you know, an obvious thing. Like, you know, it, may surprise, it surprises a lot of people to hear that this can't be done. Uh, and, and I have to explain to people regularly that, well, you have to, if you're going to build a fund, you have to contend with the 1940 Act. The 1940 Act only allows certain kinds of funds to be done at a cost-effective scale, you know, not, you know, w- w- without having to go through a full registration process. You can create a charitable fund, and that's great. That's exempt from the 1940 Act, and, and we definitely celebrate those. There's many of them out there. They serve, they serve you know, really valuable functions. By and large, most of those only make debt investments. And you know, uh, you know, now Deborah did mention that uh, the Boston Impact Initiative can make other kinds of investments, and that's great. That's great. But um, but most of them, as a practical matter, only make debt investments. Uh, and and again, while that's needed, it's not enough. So what we need is a kind of fund that can that can make equity investments without without worrying about the cash flow. Uh, that uh, that a that a charitable fund needs to worry about in order to pay its dead investors. Uh, so anyway, so that's that's where we're going with this, and and the idea is to uh, you know to, to solve the scale problem by making sure that that um, it's not too expensive to build this fund. In other words, the regulatory burden must be low for this to be cost effective. And, and we're going to solve the inclusion problem by allowing everybody to get in on the game, to level the playing field, and give everybody in any community in, in America a true wealth building opportunity uh, that doesn't require them to get a, you know, a degree in, in investing or something. So it's, uh, it allows everybody to get in on the game. So maybe I'll stop there. Thank you, Brian. And uh, you're right, uh, you can
0: talk. Uh, so. Uh we we appreciate the the wisdom b- behind your words and uh, and and the focus. So um, I, I want to uh, Deborah go back to you for a minute because um, the your the cohort model that you are using I think is really critically important in moving forward. and uh, we we have assumed that we're going to get to the place where the SEC allows us to or the Congress puts uh, a new law in place that allows the establishment of community investment funds, as Brian has described. Um, but I, I I think it'd be really helpful for us to hear how your cohort uh, process is working in teaching other communities, because this is, this is if, if nothing else, this is a grassroots kind of effort. It is not top down, it's bottom up, and we, we love how you've approached that. So if you can just talk about that for a couple of minutes, that'd be great.
4: Sure. I mean, I think when we, you know, when our model was appealing enough to get oversubscribed to quickly, um, people said, Oh, great. So Boston impact initiative, you're going to create the New York impact initiative, the Chattanooga, impact, the Seattle impact initiative. We're like, that is absurd. We know <laughs> nothing about those places. We are place-based community investors. But um, from the model of what I think of as scaling across instead of scaling up, meaning scaling up, like let's replicate, let's go the Starbucks model. We'll, pick what we did in Boston and stick it down in Seattle to how do we as a movement building group exchange as much learning tools, story sharing as possible. And that's the root of the cohort. So the integrated capital cohort um, is a community of practice of 11 communities around the country who said, yes, we want to create a place-based fund deploying integrated capital equity debt and grants and everything in between to close the racial wealth divide in our community. In each place, that's a different issue. So the folks in New Mexico are focusing on indigenous women entrepreneurs. The folks in Atlanta are focusing on black entrepreneurs. They're also at different stages. They're looking at the what's the gap in their ecosystem and how do they fill the gap? How do they be, they be additional in their own marketplace? Many of them are like us doing charitable loan funds. Some of them are doing community REITs, real estate investment trusts. Some of them are um, following Brian's suggestion on the diversified business trust. Another, I don't know if I have that language right, but another example. Um, and one of the, you know, so for us, while the charitable loan fund model works for what we're doing, um, because we are really capping returns, there is no upside for investors because our model is fundamentally redistributive. Um, there are limitations that a, a change in legislation re- regulation would make a difference on because well we can deploy any capital we want to we can only raise debt and grants we cannot raise equity as a charitable loan fund and the problem there is a mismatch so if i want to deploy equity with small enterprises and be patient but i have debt obligations i'm going to have a liquidity crisis so meaning i'm not going to have the cash free from my investments to repay my investors and so it's limit us to having only 20% of our fund be equity when what we know a lot of these entrepreneurs need is low cost patient equity sitting on their balance sheet to have a healthy balance sheet. So that's a limitation of the charitable loan fund model. There are some other limitations as well that include like, we are uh, technically a poverty alleviation ent- entity, which means we actually can't do green infrastructure investing unless for example, the way that the company operates, who owns it and what kind of jobs they are creating Um, address that. So, there are some real limitations um, in the model that we're using. Many of our cohort members are creating them because, again, in these kind of five to $20 million funds with the goal of closing the racial wealth divide, that model works well. We actually need philanthropic dollars, both to subsidize the cost of running a fund like this, as well as to provide a loan loss reserve that covers our non-accredited investors, so they they don't take on risk. Um, But it's an insufficient model down the road for the momentum in the space around place-based funds that are focused on issues of justice.
0: Great. Thank you. That's... uh a great again analysis of the situation and, and uh, appreciate the practical experience in dealing with the cohorts and the fact that they're finding different ways to skin the cat. Um, but uh, you know love the idea and pardon for cat lovers out there, but uh, but love the idea of, of, of more of a one-size fit- all fits all so that um, you know so for example, in a community where they're doing a real estate investment trust, uh, and they want to do something different. They then have to set up an entirely new community investment fund to do that. So that's challenging. Helen, I'm going to turn to you uh, for the next question. Um, and, and Brian, if you take a look uh, in the Q&A, I think there was a question for there that you could get to um, uh, either there or in the chat. If you take a look at that, there might be one or two others. Uh, that would be germane for us to respond to. Helen, you are, you came out of the foundation world uh, and have been immersed in the foundation world and now are in the foundation world and really energizing the Michigan Municipal League Foundation. Uh, So, uh, you know, it'd be really helpful for us to hear the role that you see foundations playing uh, as this movement goes forward. So we you know, we've talked about the challenge uh, in communities where wealth has been extracted for decades and there's not a tremendous amount of wealth there. And you know, how do you see foundations kind of um, putting an exclamation point at, at the end of the sentence for us?
3: Well, I, I think this is a time for public and private partnerships like we've never seen before. And adding philanthropic partnerships into that is especially important because philanthropic capital is risk capital, period. That's what it is. And when it's actually used like that, it can be tremendously powerful. It should be the kind of capital that catalyzes things that maybe a public investor doesn't feel as are safe, right? So mm-hmm. what I've seen in the past, and this may change with the ARP funding, which I'm really interested in seeing, but is I've seen philanthropic capital be sort of the, the proving ground, right? They can test, they can catalyze. And then private capital has followed that and public capital has followed that. Right now, I'd like to see philanthropic capital go like whole hog into that. There are opportunities for all of this learning that has taken place because of those catalytic experiences and learning that foundations have had access to over the years to come to bear to help public capital act differently. So I think it's both the financial aspect of what philanthropic capital can do and it's also the sort of intellectual capital of what foundations can offer to this conversation but honestly um, there's a barrier i think with foundations doing that a lot of the time i think foundations i've seen unfortunately foundations like to play it safe many times and um, everyone who runs a foundation is very interested in what their unique niche is and um, fitting into that so they can be different um, and they can talk to their board about it. And I get that. And this is a time to sort of be a bull in a China shop and to invest wildly and to no holds barred, allow people to fail, allow there to be mistakes made and learnings to happen um, and to drive some of this um, innovation and this experimentation forward. Philanthropic capital can do that. They're not answering to shareholders. They are answering to their board and they're answering to their grant partners as well. But I think we saw some, I'll say loosening of the reins a little bit during COVID because foundations were saying, you know, we we understand that our nonprofit partners can't do the work that they were doing and let them use funds to keep the doors open. And I think that was a step in the right direction. And now that people are sort of getting back out and doing things that, that feel normal again, there's a possibility of continuing that flexible approach in a way that would be incredibly powerful. Um, I also think not putting grants out in dribs and drabs, um, exercising, you know, what the Heron Foundation has done has been incredible, thinking about how to use their capital. Um, not well, they don't use they don't do any grants anymore, they only do investments, but thinking differently about the tools that are in their quiver. Um, and, and really going full force with that. Um, and if they can't do that, working with partners that can help them. But, but I will go back to sort of the first thing that I said, which is that philanthropic capital is risk capital and should be used like that. And, and right now is a time where we can be putting it and in, injecting it into places that haven't seen capital flow in a long time to, I think, match some of these pulled investment vehicles. Um, or to to help them get off the ground. I'd love to hear what these other experts on the call think about that. But but I do think that there's an opportunity to stir the pot on the unique um, dreams and hopes that community members have and to catalyze some of that with philanthropic capital.
2: Looks like we lost Chris for a second. Um, So, Brian, do you want to, do you want to address uh, the question in the Q&A uh, that was directed to you? And then I'll take the one after that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so there's a question here about whether community members actually want these community investment funds. And, and the suggestion is, you know, this, this person wrote, it seems like getting people to invest in specific businesses, e.g. through crowdfunding, has a higher success rate. Uh, people love to invest in businesses they know and love. I totally agree with that. Uh, yes, if if you know, as an investor, if you're comfortable going out on investing platforms and and reading about these companies and making assessments, uh, and and investing in something that you could get comfortable with and get to know, and particularly if you actually do know them, if they're in your community, that's ideal. And and so so I would not suggest to anyone that they stop doing that. Um, there's, there's a couple of gaps here, a couple of reasons why I think that's, that alone is not sufficient. One is that there are many investors, and I, I speak with them. I just spoke with an investor yesterday who said, I would like to be able to invest in, in small businesses, but I don't know how to make the assessments. I don't know how to make sure I'm not going get, to get, you know, you know, get scammed. Uh, you know, not everybody is in a position to make those assessments of individualized you know, crowdfunding offerings or direct public offerings or whatever it may be. And, and would like to be able to just sort of put their money into a fund that is professionally managed and entrust someone who, knows, who really knows the space to make those assessments and make good investments uh, and, and you know, do it in a diversified way that, that makes it less risky, uh, and, and it is, you know, hopefully more likely to generate profits for the investors. The other, so, so I do think there is a need for an investment fund that, that, that addresses this market of small businesses raising capital. But the other part of this that I think is a bigger issue is that the vast majority of small businesses who really could use some growth capital don't want to go through the whole process of of, of doing their own securities offering and raising capital. Um, you know, whether whether it's a direct public offering or regulation crowdfunding, these these cost money. They they take a lot of effort. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to overplay that. I mean there's there's a place for that and and there's, you know, there's a lot of companies that do that. But I will say that There are far more companies who look at those options and go, "Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to go through that process. I don't want to have to generate, you know, audited financials. I don't want to have to do this, that, or the other. You know, I don't want to have to spend, you know, ten to twenty thousand in in legal fees. Frankly, Uh, and and so they don't. And so, you know, as a practical matter, they. You know, they can get loans because there are many lo- lending organizations typically, but many of them don't want or don't qualify for a loan. And so they just don't get growth capital and cannot grow, uh, or in some cases, cannot even really get off the ground um so so yes do invest you know if as an investor do invest in opportunities that you see that you like that you're comfortable assessing but there is a need i'm convinced of it and i you know i hear people talking about this all the time about how it'd be great to just invest in a local a local uh you know venture fund that's open for non-accredited investors but there is no such thing in any community and again it's because of the restrictive uh, you know, securities rules that don't allow for that. And that's, that's the problem we're trying to solve. So, so we want to create more opportunities for, you know, more ways to invest.
0: Thanks, Brian. And I, I, uh, we yeah, lost and power to, and I was off. Back
2: up. Yeah.
0: Go ahead, Janice.
2: No, I was, I was just going to um, kind of back up what Brian was saying as someone who who um, launched one of the first crowdfunding uh, investment crowdfunding platforms in the country back in 2015? Um, we saw the interest from people wanting to make those investments um, into their local businesses, and we also saw the, the you know the, the the walls that they hit as the um, as the realities of all the due diligence and all of the uh, the other pieces that go into making an investment started to become a reality and uh, and and. People can say, yeah, maybe it's great for one business, but I'm not going to do this on a regular basis, which is why uh, giving them this uh, way to have uh, a fund that they can put their money into um, that has some professional management that is going to help them invest according to their their personal values is just a, another step uh, towards making this a reality. Um, and so I just, I wanted to back that up and uh, I know we're running out of time. I did wanna to get to, uh, there's another question in the Q and A from um, Nurul, and I pro- uh, apologize if I'm pronouncing your name um, incorrectly but the, the question is, are panelists finding bipartisan political support for needed regulatory legal changes uh, to better enable community investments? And the answer to that is yes. Um, starting with the JOBS Act back in 20, uh, 2012, it had overwhelming bipartisan support and fast forwarding now to where we are um, today, with some of the work that we are doing uh, through the the task force, um, you know, we are we you know we are seeing appeals from both Republican and Democrat uh, uh, Democratic senators and uh, Congress people for solutions to creating more community capital. And it's it's actually really exciting to see that kind of um, bipartisan support out there. So we anticipate. Um, Being able to garner support from both sides of the aisle on something that everyone kind of agrees. Hey, this, this makes sense. We need to save our local businesses and we need to help um, community members build, build personal wealth while they're doing it.
0: And and one other uh, political comment so 36 states have passed uh, exemptions uh, to essentially allow the same thing and it was overwhelmingly bipartisan in every case so one of the few issues today that is apolitical uh, so we're glad of it so uh, we just have a couple of minutes left Uh, so I first wanted to say um, that if you have posted a question in the chat or the Q&A and we haven't answered it, we will after the fact uh, and apologies for that. Um, I wanted to thank the panel uh, and give everybody like 30 seconds for a quick wrap-up comment. I'll leave Brian for last. That way if he runs long, <laughs> we can just turn him off. So, uh, so uh, and Janice, I'll start with you on that, please.
2: Um, it's just uh, I'm excited to see how many people are on this call today and showing interest and putting so much um, so much time and thought into the questions and the comments. Um, this is the kind of groundswell um, interest that we need to help convince the powers that be to make the regulatory changes that, that we have proposed. so that you know, I, I don't think we even address this directly, but the one of the um, uh, one of the most exciting, deliverables of this task force was a 10 page policy proposal to the SEC outlining some some changes that we believe are are uh, reasonable and within um, you know within the, the realm of possibility for them to exercise fairly um, hopefully soon and easily um, to make some really big change and so that's why we're excited to keep moving forward with our conversations with the SEC. Um, to see if we can get some some of these uh, changes made to the investment company act of 1940 and open up um, all new possibilities
0: great thank you deborah
4: i think i just want to notice what's happening right we're having conversation about sort of like a top-down sec approach and a bottom-up funds like ours and the cohort members and it's the concurrence of those that give us a lot of power because the evidence there's now you know almost 10 years plus of evidence for ways of investing in professionally managed pooled funds and more and more and more coming online that are finding their ways to work between the cracks of regulation. So we have the data on how effective they are and how much appetite there is for them. And if we can change the regulation, I think we'll really break this open. So if you're in a community that doesn't have one, like go create one because uh, there's lots of big models for how to do that.
0: Thank you, Deborah. Helen.
4: No, everything that Janice and Deborah just said. I mean, let's
3: let's make these changes. Let's make it okay to invest in our neighbors and let's make it possible to build community wealth.
1: Awesome, and Brian, wrap it up for us. (laughs) Well, so so I would say first, there are a number of ways. There's sort of a, a lot of options on the menu of how to do community capital. We don't need to wait for any changes in the law to, to raise capital from your own community, to you know, fund a venture. Uh, and there are a number of ways of creating investment funds right now that are truly open to the community. And, and uh, uh, Chris mentioned earlier, this handbook on community investment funds, that's out there publicly. Anyone can go to the NC3 website. I think it's comcapcoalition.org. And you can click on the CIF handbook. That's available publicly. It's, it's you know, f- for free. Uh, and it is a, I think a really good resource for anyone who wants to build a community investment fund about how to do it right now under existing law. The, the absorption of these ideas, the implementation has been slow. And, and, and currently, you know, you, uh, ideally there would be one of these or, or a menu of these in every community in America that gives every investor in America a variety of ways to invest in community capital. That's just not the case. the The absorption has been very slow. Sort of the you know the rollout of these funds has been very slow, and that is partly because uh, because of the limitations again of the 1940 Act. We can build charitable funds, we can build real estate funds that are open to the to to the community, but you cannot build a, a venture equity fund that's open to the community for investment, and that's the huge gap. So so while there are options now, and I you know if, if anyone wants to build a fund, you know. Let's go ahead, don't wait, but we need this new type of fund to become possible in order to completely transform the investing landscape in America so that everybody thinks first about investing locally before they would even dream about investing on Wall Street, because there, there will be if we get these changes that we need, there will be a whole menu of options in every community in America. It will really transform communities. If only you were enthusiastic about this, Brian, we could really get something done. So
0: uh, thank you. We've run a couple minutes over. Uh, Again, if you've left something in the chat or the Q&A, we will get back to you on it. I recognize there's some questions and some resources potentially that we can identify. We will also all be available uh, through the Michigan Municipal League Foundation. So Helen will ensure that if you send, uh, we'll send you emails out. Uh, and uh, you can communicate to that and we'll, we'll get in contact with you. But thank you for your attention and your support. Uh, you know, pay attention to this space because we will be needing to demonstrate uh, the kind of support that's, uh, that this, uh, this webinar today has demonstrated. So thank you very much. We appreciate your attention. Have a terrific day.
4: This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mml.org. And join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.